welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. New Jersey has been trying to legalize betting at racetracks and casinos for seven years, fighting to overturn a federal law that bars gambling on individual sporting events in most of the country. Today, the Supreme Court did just that in a landmark decision, ruling that the 25-year-old law was unconstitutional. Joining me is Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr. Greg, why did the justices find that federal law unconstitutional? Hi, June. What they said was that the law unconstitutionally requires states to keep a prohibition on their books. Um, It says that that is an an affront to state sovereignty and violates the Tenth Amendment of the Constitution. The vote was split. Justice Breyer seemed to be all over the place. (laughs) Explain the... Explain the split, please. Yeah, so the easiest thing to say is that the vote was 6-3 to three to strike down the entire federal prohibition. Um, uh, there, were, um, uh, there was a majority of justices who said uh, it violates the Tenth Amendment. Uh, there were two justices uh, in dissent, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Sonia Sotomayor, who said, we don't actually want to deal with the Tenth Amendment question, but you really didn't have to strike down the whole statute. You could have just done something much narrower. And then there was Justice Breyer, who said, I agree with you on the Tenth Amendment, but I also agree with the dissenters that what you should have done was just trim a little part out of this federal ban and not strike the whole thing down. Greg, this leaves the states to decide whether or not they want to offer sports betting, and that would lead to a patchwork of state laws. Will that put pressure on Congress to pass a federal law? Yeah, it might, and, and the leagues are coming out with statements. The NBA and the NFL are both saying, we want Congress to act. We want, uh, the NBA had already started moving in favor of, or moving in the direction of endorsing sports gambling, but what they want is a, is a federal framework so that they don't have different laws all around the country. With Internet gambling, the law became more anachronistic, and you had the American Gaming Association estimating that Americans illegally wager about $150 billion on sports each year. Was that any part of the consideration of the justices? It really wasn't, at least not in the in the opinion itself. It was certainly in the back background. The justices uh, know what's going on. They know that um, uh, this illegal gambling is going on. But the decision was very much written as a um, there are arguments pro and against. Uh, but that's up to Congress. We're going to leave it to Congress. The only thing we're going to say here is that Congress can't do it by forcing states to keep it on their their books. If Congress wants to outlaw sports gambling, it has to do it itself directly. When the case went to oral arguments, I remember Chris Christie saying it will take us two weeks, New Jersey, to get ourselves up and going. But now I'm hearing even days for some states. Yes. Yeah, so, so William Hill, which runs the Monmouth uh, racetrack, um, has this uh, room that is set up. They're all basically poised to go, ready to, to open up uh, and start accepting uh, single-game sports bets. Uh, they're, they're not uh, committing uh, so far today to a particular time frame only saying that they're going to do it just as soon as they can. Another ruling today that is not getting the attention of the sports gambling is about rental car drivers being able to prevent police from searching the vehicle, even if they aren't authorized to drive it. 
Yeah, so this is a case where um, somebody who was not authorized to drive the car was pulled over and uh, turns out had heroin and illegal body armor in the trunk. And the question is is whether um, he, he gets to act like he owned the car in the sense that unless police have uh, probable cause to, to, to search the trunk, um, they can't do it without his consent. Um, and what the Supreme Court said today was, we're not going to you know answer that ultimate question, but we are going to say that just because he wasn't authorized to drive this car, just because it was rented by somebody else, that's not enough of a reason for police to say you don't have any privacy rights. Uh, so you at least have some privacy rights if you're driving a car that you're not supposed to be driving if it was rented by somebody else and you're driving with permission. That seems like a leap to me. Does this show an expansive view of privacy by the justices? It, it, it might, or it may be kind of, um, uh, uh, an expansive uh, skepticism, skepticism about technicalities. Uh, there was a certain uh, tone of uh, uh, where, where they didn't want to bind somebody based on this very long rental contract, um, leaving open other arguments for the government, but not on just based on the technicalities of the contract. About a minute. Well, we're coming into the home stretch, Greg. So you have a lot of work cut out for you. What cases are you looking? forward to the oh boy can I, I, I only have a minute a minute well ter- certainly the, the, the masterpiece cake shop case involving the, the the baker who refused to make cakes for for same-sex weddings uh, that's a big one Donald Trump's travel ban will be be huge we'll certainly be talking about the internet sales tax a case that could let states start requiring uh, internet retailers to, to collect taxes C- case about a mandatory union fees that could keep going on but I know at some point June we're gonna have to end this segment we might um, <laughs> so t- Tell me when we'll hear about the next opinion. We'll, we'll probably get more more opinions on on Monday of next week. Um, uh, could well get one. I haven't mentioned. There's a good chance we should be getting very soon involved whether uh, workers can be required to forego class action lawsuits when they uh, 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 agree to their employment. All right, great. And we know that the big ones will probably be coming on the last day of the term, as they are likely to, as we've watched over the years. Thanks so much, Greg. That's Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr. Again, a landmark case at the Supreme Court ruling that a 25-year-old law that that over, that barred gambling on individual sporting events in most of the country outside of Nevada was unconstitutional. The government won the latest round in its battle against political corruption as the former Speaker of the New York State Assembly, Sheldon Silver, was found guilty of federal corruption charges for a second time. The verdict was a repeat of Silver's first trial. That conviction was tossed out by an appeals court after the Supreme Court's ruling in the McDonald case led to the reversal of several public corruption cases. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Robert Mintz, a partner at McCarter in English. Bob, was this a test of whether federal prosecutors could get a conviction under the narrower definition? Well, it was one of the first cases that was retried that had been reversed in light of the McDonald ruling. Um, but I think most observers were not surprised that there was a conviction again in the second trial because the evidence in this case against former Speaker Silver was fairly overwhelming. In other words, prosecutors, I think, were able to paint a pretty clear picture that the former Speaker was leveraging his public position in order to try to get financial gain uh, 
uh, by getting referral fees from these law firms to which he was having work steered. The original verdict was thrown out because of the jury instructions. Explain a little bit more about that. Sure. Well, the McDonald decision uh, was a case involving the former Virginia Governor Bob McDonald, and that was a case in which the court clarified what constituted an official act to support a bribery charge. And in that case, the Supreme Court held that the official act had to be a formal exercise of government power, similar to a lawsuit or a hearing or an administrative determination, and that merely setting up a meeting isn't enough. In that case, there were allegations that the former governor had set up meetings in exchange for receiving uh, gifts from uh, somebody who was trying to push a business uh, to succeed in Virginia. Um, Here, though, there really was no question that the former speaker had taken official acts. Here, the case really turned on whether or not the government could establish that there was a direct quid pro quo connection between those acts and the benefits that he ultimately received. And the case was tried just about fast, just about um, twice as speedy. Uh, The second trial was completed in two weeks. The first trial took a month to complete. One juror said the government's case was too strong for Silver to overcome. But what were the key points of Silver's defense? Well, the defense was really fairly straightforward. Um, Silver contended that he was engaged in the honest practice of law. Um, remember that legislators in New York State, as with uh, many other states, are allowed to have jobs in, in addition to their legislative positions. The legislative positions are not full-time positions. And so he's, his position was simply that he was practicing law and didn't do anything illegal by taking these referral fees. The government, on the other hand, argued that what he did was he exchanged official acts. He took certain acts to benefit certain individuals in exchange for those referral fees. And ultimately, the jury found that there was persuasive evidence to support the government's position. The defense says they're going to appeal. What's the likelihood of a, rever- of a reversal? That's hard to say. What's the likelihood of a reversal the second time around? I think it's going to be difficult the second time around. I think uh, there's substantial evidence here to support the conviction. And remember, the reversal the first time around really had nothing to do with the facts of the trial. It had to do with the McDonald decision and had to do with the instruction that was given that was determined by uh, the Second Circuit to have been overly broad. So I think they have an uphill climb to get get uh, this conviction overturned a second time. Silver's 74 years old. He was sentenced to 12 years the last time. Have the circumstances changed any? Is it likely he'll be sentenced to the same amount? Well, it's hard to say, but he was convicted on all the same charges, and so I think we can expect a sentence that is at least close to what he received the last time. Dean Skelos, the former state Senate majority leader, also was convicted, also had his conviction reversed because of the McDonald case. He'll be retried next month. Do you have any expectations for that trial? Well, I think he's going to face the same difficulties 
that uh, the former speaker faced. Um, his conviction was also overturned on grounds that had really nothing to do with his trial. So uh, he gets a second shot here uh, trying to gain an acquittal. Um, but that's a case where I think there's some um, substantial evidence that supports the, uh, the conviction. And we'll just have to see whether the government can connect the dots and show the quid pro quo arrangement as they were successfully able to do in the Sheldon Silver case. Bob, how has the government succeeded in its quest to stamp out public corruption, especially in New York? Can you tell us about the people who have either either left office because they've been forced out or just left office because they thought it was a smarter thing to do? Well, I think we're seeing a, a certainly a ratcheting up of these public corruption cases. A lot of this conduct has alleged to have been going on for years. And in fact, the Sheldon Silver case is sort of a prime example because the allegations of this misconduct is something that had been going on for, for quite a few years before federal authorities finally sought to crack down there. So I think there is a perception um, that there's been a, a rather loose enforcement of a lot of these uh, corruption laws in New York until recently. And now that we're seeing that that is stepping up, um, we're seeing uh, a, a slew of indictments and we're seeing certain politicians who are deciding not to run for re-election. Does real change have to depend on the law or changes to the law? And Cuomo, Governor Cuomo, has proposed changes to New York's anti-corruption laws after these convictions, but didn't get very far. Yeah, the problem is that uh, when you propose these anti-corruption changes, everybody's sort of in favor of it as a general principle, but then when you get down to the details, it tends to get bogged down and ultimately go nowhere. So at least for the short term, it seems that the real change is going to be brought about by the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District uh, and and elsewhere, um, where prosecutors uh, are are going to bring these charges and uh, force politicians out of office who have been violating the Law. About 45 seconds here. Uh, most of these cases were brought under the former U.S. attorney, Preet Bharara, who was really um, made a, a campaign sort of of fighting public corruption. Is that continuing under the current U.S. attorney? Well, I think it's a little early to say, but I would expect that it would. Um, public corruption has been the hallmark of U.S. attorneys' offices around the country. Um, it's always been difficult, whether it's in New York State or New Jersey or, frankly, anywhere around the country, for state attorneys' general's offices to be as effective in pursuing these public corruption cases because the individuals in the AG's office work more closely with state legislators than do the federal prosecutors. So. I think we'll expect, we can expect to see those prosecutions continue. Thanks so much, Bob. That's Robert Mintz, a partner at McCarter in English and a former federal prosecutor. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg.